0: Welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtazavi, in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we talk about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan after two decades of invasion and how this withdrawal has impacted women's rights, peace, and security in the country that is back under Taliban's rule. My guest today is Sanam Narori Anderlini, Director of the Center for Women, Peace, and Security at the London School of Economics and founder and CEO of the International Civil Society Action Network. She was a civil society leader and drafter of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 on women, peace, and security, and the first senior expert on gender and inclusion on the UN's mediation standby team. In 2019, Sanam received the member of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire Award in recognition for her services to international peace and women's right. Sanam, welcome to the Iran podcast. Thank you so much, Nagarjan. Lovely to be with you. It's great to have you. Um, let's start from the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan that specific moment, the images that we saw, the heartbreaking images that we saw, um, the chaos and essentially the disaster that ensued. Talk about your assessment of what happened, why that happened, and if you think it could have been avoided.
1: Thank you. Uh, it's very close to my heart, um, especially as an Iranian, having seen what it means to have all the rights and gains of, of women, especially subtly being kind of overshadowed and drowned in a sea of black and a sea of of, uh, of extremist um, uh, rhetoric, as we've seen with the Taliban. You know, for, for us, this work started 20 years ago, or at least for me. Um, from the outset, after 9-11, or before 9-11, I should say, when the Taliban took over, there was, you know, women's groups were active in terms of uh, asking the international community to not recognize the Taliban in the 1990s. Then, we, you know, 9/11 happened, and and the and the U.S. occupation started. And from the outset, again, what we've said for 20 years, Afghan women were saying it. I was working with them. Others in our community of practice consistently we said Afghan women. And especially Afghan women who had become engaged in peace building work should be in all of the negotiations um, related to their country, to the peace and security in their country, to represent not only themselves, but to represent the voices and concerns of their communities. Because what we saw was that very often at the political level, there is no representation and concern for what's going on at the community level. So... That was that was a sort of a long standing issue. And of course, there was a serious concern about what the Taliban's um, uh, plans and ideology was vis-a-vis women. And um, back in I think April of last year, we were saying very much that it's really critical that women are in Doha. Um, again, to address the needs of communities, to bring up things like uh, the protection of civilians, the protection of women's rights in the negotiations that were going on between the U.S. and, um, and the Taliban, and, and then subsequently with the, with the Afghan government. Sadly, uh, the Biden administration, along with the Trump administration and before that, and frankly, the Obama administration before that, none of them took the question of women seriously. None of them took the warnings of women seriously. And uh, that the line that, we're ending the forever war, uh, became dominant in Washington. For me, as I looked at the problem, it wasn't that the forever war was ending, it was that the way the negotiations were being done um, and the uh absence of serious thought about transition and about the Afghan public was actually gonna unleash war forever in Afghanistan. And so and you know, looking at it now, um, with the way the Taliban has been moving forward and the violence that is being perpetrated against women. Against uh, minorities, but also the 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 rise of ISIS there, ISIS Khorasan there. Um, sadly, our predictions are coming true, and it's and it's just devastating to watch.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's take a step back and talk about what is being lost, or essentially what was gained in the past two decades during the U.S. occupation in Afghanistan. We know that civil society or a civil society was created, was strengthened. There were Um, achievements in in areas of women's rights obviously depending on who you ask or which area of the country you look at but there was a sort of a vibrant community that was pushing forward talk about some of those achievements um, of the past 20 years and how you see that being sort of backtracked or lost since the US left so first of all
1: uh, we have to look at the population of the country. Over 60 per, 62% are under the age of 25. Over 40% mm-hmm. are under the age of 14. This is a young country, and it's a young country that really doesn't know what life was during those five years of Taliban uh, prior to the U.S. occupation. They've mm-hmm. grown up with, on the one hand, the violence that the war per- per- perpetrated, you know, both the U.S. And, and the NATO occupation aspects of it, but also the Taliban aspects of it. But they also grew up going to school, going to university, you know, having a vibrant media, uh, having all sorts of kind of forms of openness. I, I was there in 2013, and I remember meeting a, gro- a group of students, um, young women from Kabul University. They came from across the country. They came from all over the provinces. And every single one of them said to me that their fathers had really wanted them to go to university because they knew that having an education would be a better means of protecting them against violence or against uh, poverty and, and so forth uh, in life. So the attitude and the mentality of giving hope and give, and having openness was something that was embedded. Um, the desire for education was there. And, and so what's happening now is something that the vast majority of the country has never experienced, doesn't, doesn't know what this means, really. And it's certainly not something that, that, that they um aspire to the other thing that i think the world never really picked up and i and i partly blame western media and the narrative that that we had over the last 20 years was that when you look at it it's extraordinary the number of journalists women journalists from around the country that ha- that are now at risk but but they emerge it's extraordinary to see the number of judges and lawyers and prosecutors and others in the legal sector that that have you know that all of a sudden have come into the mix. I've I've been dealing in the last um, eight months since August uh, with women police officers, people who had been you know trained and deployed around the country. We work with civil society. I have a network, uh, a partner who runs a local organization. They have a network of women, young women, focal points in every single province in the country, and they're still documenting what's happening, and they're still working on issues of mental health and so forth. So the the story of Afghan women was never really told properly in the West. And and I think part of the issue is that there's a depth of, in a way, racism and sexism around how we talk about it. It's always about around the language of, oh, we're trying to empower Afghan women. Honestly, when I look at what these Afghan women are doing now, Standing in front of the Taliban, facing the guns, facing the batons, without a shred of defense, uh, just themselves and their and their placards, um, asking for their rights. Uh, they don't need empowerment. They need it to be heard. They need to be heeded now, um, and they need respect and recognition from the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And let's also talk about going back to not the actual withdrawal, but the way Afghans or Afghan. Allies, as some Western governments call certain Afghan workers who've worked with the US and other allies, and also other parts, demographics that essentially were under threat with the Taliban rule. Um, I saw in your letter uh, in in ICANN, in your organization, there's a letter from the founder and CEO, and part of that letter you explained that. We expected that governments which had pledged to protect women peacebuilders would stand by us as we stood with our partners, but we witnessed a different reality. Kabul's stray dogs and cats were evacuated, but women peacebuilders were not. And we hear the story not just about women peacebuilders, but journalists. Um, workers, translators who were sort of left behind or left kind of in limbo in third countries. Talk about that process, the evacuation, the refugees, and what was promised to some of these Afghan allies or not, but Afghans who are under threat, and uh, what actually has been happening in reality now that we're, we're almost uh, reaching the one-year mark.
1: Thank you. So um you know, I do, I'm not a military strategist, but I'm not sure who made the decision to, for the US to give up Bagram air, Airport Air Base, which was the biggest sort of airbase in the country, um, and from which they could have done the evacuations not only of American soldiers, but of the equipment and, and so forth, and of all the various people that, that were directly at, at, under threat. But they gave that up and they ended up in Kabul Airport and we saw all the the, the sort of absolute chaos that that reigned um, as people were trying to evacuate and all sorts of people made it to the airport and others didn't. The thing that we saw was that it was very random. So some people who had, you know, were allied with the US, for example, had their SIV papers and things, were were evacuated and were helped along. A uh, Huge percentage were not. I've been involved in trying to help people out, um, They were promised uh, convoys that would pick them up in August, prior to August 31st. Uh, The convoys never went to get them. Um, I know of governments that that offered the U.S. um, help and said, you know, we've we've evacuated our own people. We can send a plane in to bring, you know, Afghan women, human rights defenders and others. Um, And the U.S. refused that help at the time. Uh, So... there's a lot to be to to be looked into and investigated around what exactly happened and why these decisions were made. What we saw, frankly, was that women peacebuilders, women police officers, women judges, lawyers, um journalists, as you say, you know, women and men were left behind and and i I feel responsible in the sense that. They have been part of a community of practice, a global community of practice. Our governments pledged to protect them. I'm, I'm a British citizen, and we worked with the British government. They took a report that we produced on guidelines for the protection of women peace builders. They took it to the Security Council, and they said, we pledge support for this. So they were responsible to help get these people out, and they didn't. Um, other governments came to us, they had helped us. At ICANN, we run a fund called the Innovative Peace Fund, and we fund local organizations. We were doing grant-making to Afghan organizations. Governments that supported us and supported this work said, give us the names of the people who are at risk, and, and you know we will try to process them. We gave the names. We're still waiting for most of these people. So I don't really understand um, how, from on a human level, we could have done done this and not been prepared in advance for the kind of people that would have really needed to be helped and, and assisted to leave. Um, as I say, I, either to leave or to have had the wherewithal in advance to say what is going to be done to make sure that these people are protected. Over 3,000 women police officers have disappeared. We don't know what's happened to them. And you know, if you look back just even a year ago, all sorts of countries are taking pictures with them and and saying, "Isn't it great that we we help train these women police officers?" They were under the responsibility of the United Nations. I've asked the United Nations, "What did you do?" I had UN colleagues calling me to ask me to help these people. It's it is such a travesty. I can't I can't tell you the depth of betrayal that we feel in in our as I say in our commun- global community of practice around those who have worked on. And, and have committed to sort of working on peace um, as, as women's rights activists and others, but also just trying to understand what's the point of the international declarations and, and, and policies and conventions and so forth that we have if we don't live, by, live up to them. And, and, and then the travesty of, as, as, as I wrote in my letter, um, to see that 200 cats and dogs were given permission to leave,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: people were not. So how can how can any government, how can the United Kingdom or, or the U.S. or others stand and say we stand for human rights when, when actually we prefer to evacuate cats and dogs?
0: Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to ask you about the U.N. Security Council Resolution 1325, which you helped draft. And I think this is a good segue. You've been talking about Women peace builders. I, first, all, I want to ask you who these women peace builders are. Explain um, this, the type or the category that you're talking about. And you also written a book on this issue: women building peace, what they do, why it matters. So basically, I want to ask you this question: What are these women peace builders doing, and why does it matter? Why should we be listening to them? So. Um, it, these these are women who,
1: first of all, are extraordinary human beings, to be honest with you. Um, imagine in the middle of a crisis like Yemen or Syria, uh, the vast majority of people will be running away or trying to protect themselves. And in their midst, there are women who emerge. Sometimes they're engineers. I know, I know colleagues of mine, friends of mine who were engineers, architects, poets, uh, teachers often, these are people who run to the problem. They run in, as, as others are running away, they're the ones who go in and say, well, wait a second, how do we mediate to make sure that children with cancer can have access to either medicine or evacuation? How do we make sure that humanitarian aid can come through? They create the spaces for dialogue. They try to find the humanity in the other um, at a time when people are pulling apart their societies. And they are an interesting sort of mix of... Sometimes they start from a human rights background. You know, they're coming and they're they're women's rights activists, and and they then come into the space of peace building. Other times they start with this peace work. So, for example, I have a colleague in Sri Lanka. Her son went missing. He was in the army. He went missing. And she led a group of mothers of missing soldiers into the jungle um, to negotiate with the uh, Tamil Tigers at the time. This is going back to the 1990s. You know, she didn't have training in anything specific. It, it came from the heart and, and her heart was driving her to say, I need to go find my son. And there are all these other people who need to, who are looking for their children. And in doing so, we need to also seek out the humanity of the very people who are responsible for the disappearance of my child. Mm-hmm. It's an extraordinary um, uh, quality to have. And I, I came across this myself in the early 90s when I started my work in this field. I met a Rwandan woman, and it was uh, actually it was 1998, so so four years after the after the Rwandan genocide in, in 1994, and uh, she was talking about the need for reconciliation and looking for peace and, and a, a peaceful future for the children of Rwanda. And um, I learned later that she had lost 100 relatives in the genocide. Wow, and and it made me. It really made me pause. I was in my late twenties when I when I came across this, and you know, it made me stop and actually contemplate that if that had happened to me, what would what would be my reaction?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Would I be angry? Would I seek revenge? Would I be just devastated and depressed and completely destroyed, um, or would I have this extraordinary capacity to say? this happened to me, I don't want it to happen to others. I have to step in and shape the future in a different way and be transformative. Um, that's really what drew me into this line of work. And what's extraordinary is that in the 25 years that I've worked, in every, pretty much in every country where there's been a war or a conflict, I've managed to either uh, work myself or have partners and colleagues that I've met internationally and are part of the network that, that we now spearhead. And I keep finding these people, and they inspire me they are um they are my friends uh, they are they to me they are they are the very, very best of of humanity and and wars bring out the worst in humanity, but they also bring out people like this and I just wish everybody in the world knew what it means to be a peace builder and to get to know my colleagues um, they are uh it's a privilege. It's truly a privilege to, to, to work with them.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to ask you about your work at ICANN and then later LSC. But let's first uh, talk about this resolution, the Resolution 1325, which you helped draft at the United Nations Security Council on Women, Peace and Security, adopted unanimously. It was a landmark resolution uh, adopted in, in, 2000, in October 2000. And uh, it essentially acknowledges the disproportionate and unique impact of conflict on women and girls and also recognizes the important role of women in peacebuilding. Talk about this resolution, how you came about to write to drafting this and to the adoption and what it's essentially about.
1: So the resolution came about, or the idea of the resolution came about in um In 1998, we had the first international uh, conference on women in war zones in London. Um, We had 50 women from all around the world. There were Israelis, Palestinians, Afghans, Colombians, Guatemalans, South Africans, from all over. And everybody was telling their story. Some of them had been women who had been fighters, so they'd been liberation fighters. Um, Others had been rights activists. Um, The Israeli women, for example, um, they came, there was a group called the Four Mothers, and their sons had been deployed by the uh, Israeli Defense Forces to Lebanon at the time, and they were saying, why are our kids dying in, in, uh, in Lebanon? Um, and they'd started with posters on the stri- sides of the street in Israel saying, you know, withdrawal, withdrawal from, from, um, uh, of, of, of Israeli forces. And so these, there were these women who, who came, and there was no you, sort of shared parameter or framework for saying, look, when war happens... Women emerge and they start doing things. They're, they can be fighters, they can be politicians, they can be civil society activists, they can do humanitarian work. Um, we need to recognize what they do. And of course, it was also, um, you know, under the the sort of the cloud of the rape camps in Bosnia and the genocide in Rwanda, where the sexual violence against women had been very deliberate and very strategic. So in Bosnia in the 1990s, um, Serbs were serb fighters were raping bosnia Bos, bosnian muslim women deliberately to destroy community identity and deliberately to force pregnancies as part of the, the destruction of of identity so women's bodies have become the frontline battlefields if you want um, and we've seen that systematically even in ukraine today we hear about soldiers telling telling young women you know we're going to force you to get pregnant and and never again will you have ukrainian children that this kind of thing so um there was this this sort of duality and uh as a as a result of that conference we said look we need a global campaign for people to understand what's happening and the cl- campaign should have pillars of participation and partnership and so forth but we need a policy pillar so we um said we want a security council resolution we want an EU resolution and we want a resolution at the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe I did a publication for UN UNIFEM the precursor to UN women at the time where I interviewed 15 women who'd been in peace negotiations to see really what's the difference and what did they say and 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 others around those peace processes to say what what does what's the difference when women are at the, at the peace table how does it change the atmosphere how does it change the conversations and so forth we did analysis of what's going on and and collectively from the ground up we did a lot of consultations from around the world in war zones and pulled that information together and created a a sort of an alliance in New York of of other organizations and started lobbying the governments to say we want a Security Council resolution. I Honestly, at the time, I didn't know the protocol, so I was quite happy to just knock on people's doors and chase after diplomats and say, you know, we we want to talk to you. Um, But it was a resolution that we first drafted as civil society, and it was a resolution that the substance of it came from the ground up. It was not a sort of academic exercise coming out of some think tank in Washington or, or New York or whatever. It really was the voices of women from the ground around the world and us distilling it and then, and then sharing it with, with governments to say, you know, these are the concerns. And, and it had four original pillars. Pillar number one was and still is prevention of war. You know, we want, we want wars to stop. Um, Pillar number two was the participation of women in peace processes and and decision-making around peace and security. Uh, The third was the protection of women's uh, physical and legal rights, so in refugee settings and IDP settings, but also when we're thinking about elections and disarmament and and, um, transitional justice and so forth, kind of really addressing women's rights, constitutional issues. And then the fourth was around... um, Uh, Peacekeeping and the importance of having women in peacekeeping UN peacekeeping operations because we had seen that when the UN deploys peacekeepers, they themselves end up being perpetrators of sexual violence and uh, spreading HIV/AIDS and leaving behind UN babies and 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 things like that. And and what we know is that when you have more women in those um, in peacekeeping forces, that the rate of uh, sexual abuse and exploitation. Uh, decreases quite dramatically. So those were the original four pillars of, of the resolution. Um, and then subsequently, there have been nine other resolutions that then deepen the agenda and, and um, you know, sort of address things like violent extremism, sexual violence and conflict in a more significant way and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now, going sort of back to Afghanistan, but then also talking about your NGO, you've been working, uh, you're a founder and now CEO of This organization, ICANN, the International Civil Society Action Network that's been working for women's rights, peace and security. And I know you've been very active in Afghanistan, especially during the withdrawal. And uh, you've done work with partners on the ground with other women's organizations and peace organizations. Talk about ICANN's work in the past year specifically and then also more generally before that. Um, with women and with peacebuilders in Afghanistan.
1: So part of our philosophy is that we support women peacebuilders and we have a sort of a three-tier approach. So uh, personal solidarity, sort of being there for them because this can be very lonely work. Professionally, kind of both providing opportunities for professional development for for their presence in international spaces like the Security Council and and the European Parliament and so forth. Um, And also recognizing, you know, uh, Nominating them for awards so they're recognised internationally, and then the third element of our work is institutional support, which includes um, uh, grant making um, as well as strategic advice around work. So in the sort of in the run up to to August of last year, we had been doing grants to partners. Um, we had a partner in uh, Herat, for example, who came to us back in 2015 and said that she wanted to. She'd been doing a lot of work on women's rights, but she wanted to work with men, and so. I'd done a 10-country study for UNDP on looking at men in violent settings and had a, sort of developed a, a questionnaire. So I shared that with her in terms of how to engage men. How do you start talking to guys about their experiences of violence? And I'm um, saying, you know, start with the personal. What have they experienced in, in, in the you know 40 years of war and what are their fears and so forth? So we helped her sort of d- design it and... Um, advised that it should be done in smaller groups. She went off and came with her own version, which was which is really the core of our work. We really believe in investing in trust. We trust our partners to know what's needed locally. And our advice is really around good practices that come from other contexts that we know. So she came back and she said um, she'd created groups uh, from you know different communities where she was bringing Islamic, for their, their clerics, their imams, their district chiefs, a school teacher, and young, two young guys, and would do groups of 20 men and teach them and get them to talk about these experiences of violence, and then how do you resolve conflict um, nonviolently? What does it mean to be a woman? And, and giving them a little window into the life of the women and girls in their society, a little window into the life of the children in their societies. And this work eventually became a net, network of 600 men in Herat and then reaching out beyond. And it had... Huge impact in terms of violence reduction against children, early marriages, um, de-radicalization of, of guys who wanted to become Talib. And even in the aftermath of, of August, those men are still there and they're still playing a really critical role in terms of mitigating conflict and, and, and so forth. So we've been, we had that, we were providing that kind of support. We've continued with the organizations that are there. Some of our partners have stayed. Uh, we have one partner who runs a shelter for women. Um, and she's still there, and so so we're still trying to get money to the ground there. We are providing um personal grants uh, emergency grants to people um, that were part of the networks and are now in hiding, so providing them with safe houses. We've had incidences of a young a young doctor for example, who was introduced to me and and she was um, she'd been targeted by the Taliban. they wanted to force her into marriage her and her sister, so we helped them with a safe house um, and, and and some uh, livelihood grants. Um so we we're still providing organizational support we're trying to help individual families inside the country, and then we've been doing advocacy internationally around what it means to be gender responsive in the humanitarian aid that is being done, what it means to make sure that international actors really are engaging Afghan women um in their discussions and in you know in many ways it's quite simple we We advised one international uh figure who was visiting. Um, we said to her, you know if you 're going to meet with the Taliban, invite them to your embassy or your your space and make sure that Afghan women are also invited it 's your you know it 's your space if they want to come and have a dialogue with you you 're allowed to have whoever you want so we 're trying to create we 're trying to sort of both advise in practical ways but also give guidance on on better practices and then, in the midst of all this we 've also been involved in in helping evacuate those who are really at risk and um, so far, we've helped over 500 people um, leave the country. Our approach has been to really work with governments that will help with resettlement so that these people aren't stuck in transit um, in limbo land uh, around the world. So um, we're seeing families of ours that that we helped um, now settling in different European countries and, and in North America and elsewhere. Um, it's been an enormously difficult um, and traumatic uh few months for me and my team. I have a very young team and, and the emails and the texts and the voice messages come day and night. They still do, the requests for help still do come. Um, but you know, I, when, when it all happened, I said to my team that I want to make sure that later on in life, um, when they look back, they don't feel regret for not doing what they could. I want them to feel that they did everything that they could to help people. We may not be able to help everybody, but every life that we have been able to help, and every child, and there are so many, so many kids. Uh, I hope that they end up having the opportunity to be educated, and that one day they pay forward the the favor in a, in a way, the 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 gift that they that we've been able to help them have. Um, so it it's it's yeah it's been a, it's been a hard few months. Um, we've had unbelievable support from. Individuals in different governments. I mean, there are some superheroes in really invisible inside bureaucracies. We couldn't have done it without them. Um, So it's it's been an it's been an era of kind of personal responsibility and people taking a stand and uh, um, and seeing what it what it means when you join together with with people that you've never known before, and they just happen to care. And so so we work together on these issues. Mm
0: -hmm. And you were telling me that you're basically not in the business of evacuation or transporting refugees, but you ended up, you and your team doing that work, even journalists. I mean, I myself as a journalist and in journalist circles that I'm with got involved, as you said, as private citizens. If you needed Farsi translation here and there, if you had connections with this government, that government, there's a plane leaving we have a couple of seats left do you know people to get on the plane it was just a very chaotic situation and i also want to ask you because i know you're also observing uh the situation in ukraine russia's aggression the attack on the country the invasion essentially of ukraine and the horrific horrific images that we're seeing of ukrainian refugees of fleeing the country, a mass exodus in a way, women and children, civilians. But it's also heartwarming to see how their neighbors, many European countries, or even those who are not their immediate neighbors, have opened their borders, are welcoming them with open arms, trying to help them quickly assimilate into the new atmosphere with kids going to school, even bringing Ukrainian teachers so that Ukrainian children wouldn't feel isolated at school and just really demonstrating how you should and you can essentially welcome and treat refugees. But unfortunately, that wasn't the scenes that we saw and the experience that um, Afghan refugees or even before them, Syrians uh, fleeing the war, the civil war in Syria, have had talk about some of these well heartwarming images that we're seeing now, and also the stark difference or the heartbreaking uh, images that we saw previously.
1: So I think um, there's there's so many different aspects to this. So on the one hand, absolutely, it, it's it is extraordinary to see the outpouring of uh, support and generosity and welcome that uh, Ukrainians are getting now. Um, that said. Uh, one of the questions we have to ask is that the problems with ukraine have been bubbly, were bubbling from 2008 and then 2014 and where was uh, the international community where was the un where was where mm-hmm. was nato and, and the eu and and all you know antonio Guterres and others the united Na- united states especially in terms of radical diplomacy to actually try and mitigate the war so it, it shouldn't have happened Right. And, and this is this is one of the things that uh, for me is is very stark that we keep seeing problems arise and the early warning signs are there and nothing is done until the crisis happens, but people's lives are destroyed. You know, I, I, I sometimes I wonder. You know, did they did anybody bother to think that yes, if a war breaks out, fourteen year old, year old girls are going to be raped, and who's responsible for that? So so there is a level of responsibility internationally around around the question of why there wasn't as I said, the, the attempt at radical inclusive diplomacy, you know, having the businesses, having the religious leaders, everybody sitting around the table figuring out how do you mitigate and, and de-escalate the problem um, from, from the outset. having I mean, That didn't happen. So so we have the refugees and, and it's, uh, as I say, I, I genuinely hope the war doesn't last very long and that people have a chance to, to return to their homes. The stark difference between the treatment of Ukrainians and the treatment of Afghans um Is notable for all of us, and um, we have to call it what it is. It is, I think, largely a mix of um, racism and Islamophobia. I've I know people who have said to me, you know, we have to be careful about dangerous people coming. Which dangerous people? You know, the the women and the journalists that you and I know. Those are dangerous people. Young kids um so, so why are they dangerous and others are not right so it is it is what it is it's it is deep islamophobia and deep kind of racism um uh, of a sort of a uh, of a sort that we know exists but is rarely discussed um the second part of it i think is to do with um again the narrative that we've had around afghanistan over the last 20 years that there 's Afghan fatigue, and there's this attitude of, "Oh, we spent a trillion dollars there, and nothing you know nothing good came of it. Well, again, the reality is that that trillion dollars, if you actually look at it, the vast majority of that money went into American military hardware and and American contractors who made billions of dollars there. Mm-hmm. It didn't really go down to the ground it didn't really go down to the kind of people that that dedicated their their lives to building their country um, and believed in the, the values of human rights and g- democracy and so forth. So um, so the narrative I think is is a real problem as well and, and as I said the, the fatigue around oh oh you know it's it's endless. The Afghan story is endless. I think that I think that's that's been a real problem. And then and then thirdly I think one of the things that's overlooked very often and, and when we hear about it it's 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 sort of presented in in its worst possible light is that if you look at both Iran and Pakistan, they have actually taken in a profound number of people. It's, mm-hmm. d- it's difficult. It's not easy. There, have been, there certainly have been problems in both countries, and it's, and it's you know very, very difficult life for, for Afghans. But Iran has taken some, something like up to 5 million Afghans. Nobody even knows the numbers. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions we have to ask is, where is the world's support for the refugees and, and the humanitarian aid that, that Iran, Afghanistan, Turkey, and other countries in the region also need? Um, in terms of coping and, and supporting and 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 providing the assistance that, that that's necessary, and then finally, and and this is this is the big big sort of picture um, issue is that so long as you have the Taliban there, and so long as the Taliban is behaving as it is towards women, girls, minorities, and others, there will be a constant flow of people desperate to leave the country. Rightly so, as I said from the beginning, that this is a young country. Who would want their daughter or their son growing up in that environment? So. If the international community want, is concerned about the refugee flows, they have to also be concerned about what happens inside the country. Where, and, and sadly, in the U.S., at least the Biden administration, the attitude seems to have been, oh, you know, what happens in Afghanistan stays in Afghanistan. And the reality is, no, what happens in Afghanistan not only impacts the region, but it has kick-started the rise of a new wave of Islamist jihadi violence uh, around the world and in Afghanistan itself. So, you know, all this sort of fight against terrorism that was supposedly the reason why we were there in the first place, we've let it all happen again between Trump and, and Biden with with the failure in the diplomatic efforts and the political efforts and lack of political vision. I, it, this isn't about using the military because everybody's inst- instrumentalized the military in, in, in various ways. This is about what is the political vision, what is the political strategy and the diplomatic strategy. And and um, uh, Mr. Khalilzad truly, truly failed everyone um, in, in these uh, endeavors.
0: Mm-hmm. And finally, Sanam, I want to talk about a member of your family, your aunt, if I'm correct, and an early inspiration for your work and your career, Satsore Farman an Iranian author, social worker, basically a pioneer in the field of social work in Iran. Talk about her... And her work a little bit and how she inspired you to um, be, to enter this field and, and essentially choose this career. You, you brought both a smile, a huge smile and
1: tears to my eyes just thinking about her. Um, you know, in 1994, she, her book came out, Daughter of Persia. And, um, and I remember I was traveling to the States and I read the book Front to back on the plane, I didn't, I couldn't put it down, and it was really a moment for me because it was almost like finally fitting the pieces together of what I was interested in and what I, what my calling was, and suddenly saying, oh, you know what, you know my desire to do something and you know, help change the world one way or another um, is actually rooted. to sort of there's DNA involved in this. You know, my mm-hmm. aunt was doing this, and it came from. Uh, a rich sort of um, history of of family values, um, including the fact that we were brought up that with great privilege comes great responsibility, and so um, I think I think her book and her story was really a, a, a pivotal moment for me. I'd, I'd been looking at practicing law. I'd been interested in uh, in war, being a war correspondent, um, and all of a sudden I was like, actually, I wanted I want to be part of sort of being part of the change, if you want, you know, at the forefront of being a change agent myself. And, and I fell into this, you know, in a way I sought this work out, but I, but I also sort of came across it and, and it just became a natural fit over the years. Um, So yes, she was definitely an inspiration and, um, and, you know, not just her, my, I had another uh, of my mother's sisters, uh, Soraya Sepahi, who was the um, founding, was the first person to bring uh, physiotherapy and, 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 Care for the handicapped to Iran, and she passed laws and 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 set up schools and you know brought prosthetics and so forth. So these women were, you know, really behind me. And um, uh, you know, sometimes when I'm in meetings where I get frustrated, I kind of feel as if I'm sitting not only with my aunts watching over me, but but my entire network of of women peacebuilders now from around the world, kind of also there. Um, it, both their voices channeling through me and, and me kind of being the voice that 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 they want to have internationally. So um it's it's a yeah, it's a legacy and I and I hope to take it forward. I've got I've got two daughters who are 21, um twins and uh they're heading into the realm of environmental um issues. So uh, I guess I guess the yeah, the legacy or the DNA continues going onwards. <laughs>
0: OK, great. Well, on that note, let me encourage our audience to follow your work. I know you're active on social media, on Twitter specifically, where me and you also do a lot of in- exchanges. And sometimes we share a fair share of attacks and toxicity. we were just talking about that. I also encourage them to read your writings, your book, women building peace, what they do and why it matters. And also follow the work of your organization. when you found it, I can and also um, your center at LSC where you've joined as a director, the Center for Women, Peace and Security at the London School of Economics. So, Adam John, thank you so much for joining there on podcast. Thank you so much, Negarjan. And uh, as for those attacks, peace builders
1: always get attacked because we're like the bridges and people sometimes want to walk all over you. But it's an
0: important work, piece of work to do. And, and I think in journalism, you guys are doing a phenomenal job as well. Thank you. Thank you, and nevertheless, you continue. Thank you so much. That was Sanam Narari Anderlini, Director of the Center for Women, Peace, and Security at the London School of Economics and Founder and CEO of the International Civil Society Action Network. And thank you for tuning into the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Twitter at Iran Podcast. You can also support our work by going to anchor.fm slash the Iran Podcast. And clicking on support. Until next time, goodbye.